0: Welcome back to the Evidence-Based Rheumatology Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Putman, and this is episode 53, Nintendative for the Treatment of Systemic Sclerosis-Associated Interstitial Lung Disease. Astute listeners may be asking themselves, didn't we already do this episode? Well, you're correct. In episode 42, I discussed the same trial. However, two things have happened since then. The first is that a couple of other issues have come up that have left me feeling like I didn't quite do this trial justice. And the second is that I published an article in The Rheumatologist that gives me a good jumping off point to discuss those things. So my plan for today is to read you that article and then expand a little bit on some issues that didn't make it into that or the prior podcast. So for starters, let me just read through this article that I wrote. The article was published on December 18th, 2019. It was entitled FDA Approves Intentive for Systemic Sclerosis Associated ILD, but temper your expectations. Here goes. The U.S. Food and Drug Administration approved nintedanib for systemic sclerosis-associated interstitial lung disease on September 6th, after a randomized controlled trial, CENSUS demonstrated significant benefit against placebo. At a cost of $96,000 per year, treatment reduced the adjusted annual rate of change in forced vital capacity (FVC) from negative 93.3 milliliters in the placebo group to negative 52.4 in the nintedanib group, or and I quote, a relative difference of 40%, end quote, according to a press release from the manufacturer. Rheumatologists and the media have been understandably enthusiastic about a new therapy for systemic sclerosis-associated ILD. However, a closer analysis of the data may temper expectations. For starters, reporting the relative difference in FBC decline exaggerates the treatment effect. At one year, the FBC in both groups worsened, Patients treated with an declined decline by 1.4% compared with 2.6% in the placebo group, an absolute difference of only 1.2%. This more closely approximates the patient experience, which almost certainly did not approach a 44% improvement in quality of life. In fact, patients reported no subjective improvement at all. Neither the facet dyspnea nor the HAC-DI differed between groups. This should not be surprising. A 1.2% absolute decline of FEC does not meet any minimal clinically important difference thresholds. A stringent threshold of greater than 10% was met by 7% in the intended group and 8.3% in the placebo group, a 1.3% absolute difference for a number needed to treat of 77 patients. The difference for an FEC decline of greater than 5% was larger with a reduction of 20.6% in the nintedanib group and 28.5% in the placebo group for an absolute difference of 7.9% and a number needed to treat of 13 patients. Even accepting a low bar for a minimal clinically important difference, 13 patients would need to be treated with nintedanib for one to benefit. This modest effect shrinks among patients already receiving mycophenolate mofetil, the standard of care for systemic sclerosis ILD, which was taken by only half of patients in this trial. Among these patients, the benefit of Nintendinib fell from 41 milliliters FVC decline per year to 26 milliliters less FVC decline per year. This was not a statistically significant difference. Similarly, Nintendinib did not confer a significant benefit among patients with limited systemic sclerosis who made up 48% of the population studied. Had this trial been performed on patients receiving background MMF or with limited systemic sclerosis, it may not have shown significant benefit or been approved by the FDA. Most importantly, nintedanib is not a benign therapy. Treatment caused increased rates of diarrhea, 75.7% versus 31.6%, number needed to treat of 2. Vomiting, 24.7% versus 10.4%, number needed to harm of 7. And weight loss, 11.8% versus 4.2%, number needed to harm of 13. Many patients with systemic sclerosis can ill afford such side effects. In this trial, the rate of events that were incapacitating or that caused an inability to work or to perform usual activities was high, 18% versus 12.5% for a number needed to harm of 18. In the real world, with less intensive monitoring, it could be even worse. Selecting patients for therapy appropriately may mitigate these issues. The modified rod and skin score did not differ between groups, and intensive should not be offered as a treatment for skin disease limiting use to patients with diffuse systemic sclerosis or MMF intolerance may further focus treatment on the population most likely to benefit. Conversely, nintedanib could be avoided in patients with low body mass who can at least afford weight loss. Such an approach would substantially reduce the eligible pool of patients and has not been studied. Physicians should be aware, though, that not all subgroups experience a statistically significant or clinically meaningful benefit from therapy. In summary, the benefit of nintedanib is modest at best, in subgroup analysis, patients receiving the standard of care or with limited systemic sclerosis did not significantly benefit. Quality of life did not improve, either with regard to facet dyspnea or HACDI. di The most likely outcome from therapy for the majority of patients will be adverse events. Strategies to mitigate these risks may help, but they remain untested. Patients with systemic sclerosis, ILD, need new options, but rheumatologists should be cautious in offering them nintenanib. That was the article that I wrote for the rheumatologist. But there are a few things that didn't make it into there and that I think are worth discussing. So let me go over them now. And the first are counterarguments made by people who think this is a good drug. I'm going to list four in order of how legitimate I think they are. The first is what about time? 1.2% per year eventually would add up. The second is that Nintendo looked great in in-build. The third is that we should be looking at some of these subsets. And the fourth is what else could we possibly do? So let me take the first, which is, over time, perhaps the benefit will be greater. This is a legitimate argument. 1.2% over one year may not be a lot, but if that hits 10% at eight years, that's something that might start to matter to patients. My rejoinder to this is that, for one, this is by no means certain. For all we know, Nintendantib helps the first year, and then the benefit completely stabilizes. Perhaps over time, the side effects actually add up, and over a long period of time, Nintendidib is clearly a net worse for patients. I don't know the answer to this question, and really, I don't think anyone does. But I would say that a 1.2% benefit is small enough that it's going to take many years of therapy for this to be a difference that most patients would actually realize. The second argument that's not a bad one is that this looked great in in in-build. The INBUILD trial, which did not focus on patients with systemic sclerosis and did include some of them, was published shortly after census, also in the New England Journal of Medicine. Now, for one, INBUILD was not powered to look at patients with systemic sclerosis. For two, it was enriched for patients who were rapidly losing FVC. So it was just a different cohort. And for three, the difference in in INBUILD was much larger. The benefit in in INBUILD was about three times more than the benefit seen in census. My take home from that is that Nintentive seems to work pretty well for IPF, but not very well for systemic sclerosis associated ILD. This actually makes me kind of concerned because the pulmonologists who will be sharing patients with us are going to be very comfortable using this drug and are probably going to be prescribing it on the hopes that they'll see the same benefit they see in other disease states. I'm not an expert in ILD, but until recently I haven't heard anyone arguing that the pathophysiology between IPF and systemic sclerosis ILD is the same. All of a sudden people seem to be saying this. The third argument people have been making is to say, look at the subsets. There's really something here. The first is that people will say that MMF and Nintendantib look similar. Even though this was a randomized controlled trial comparing two things, at baseline, half the sample was taking MMF. So you really have four interesting groups that are worth looking at. What people are doing is saying that if you look at the group that only got Nintendantib and compared to the group that only got MMF, they looked about the same. So maybe nintentative has a similar benefit to MMF. This is flawed for so many reasons. The first is an obvious one. Patients weren't started on MMF. They were started on nintentative. If there is a benefit up front to these therapies, that is going to massively favor the nintentative group, which is getting this up front, and it's going to come into the detriment of the MMF group, which has already realized that benefit and is now more in the chronic state. If anything, this suggests to me that the benefit of MMF is durable and is probably greater than the benefit of nintedanib. The second problem is that this is a group of patients who were referred to a randomized controlled trial while on MMF. This is going to enrich the cohort for people who failed MMF or who were not adequately responding to MMF. The real trial would have been to start patients up front on MMF or nintedanib. This trial did not do that And I suspect that if they had, they would have found that MMF was superior. I don't have great data for that, but this comparison to me is not reassuring at all. On the contrary, it makes me think that MMF is probably better. The other problem is that people are picking and choosing their subsets. If you want to talk about these subsets, let's talk about subsets. For some reason, Nintendative didn't work at all among patients who are African-American. It also didn't work at all among patients from North America. Those seem to be pretty relevant comparisons for physicians who are in North America advocating for this drug. If you want to talk to me about subset analyses from InBuild, I think we should talk about how this drug doesn't seem to have any impact whatsoever on patients who live in North America. That is weird and worth discussing if we're going to put a lot of credence into subset analysis. I think subset analysis can be interesting, and I do look at it myself, but I don't think it's the basis for expanding indications for a drug. Last but not least is the argument that there aren't a lot of great therapies, and what else are we going to offer? This is a very pernicious idea. Offering something is not necessarily better than offering nothing. The something needs to have a favorable risk-benefit ratio, and it has to work. Giving patients a drug with toxicity that may not help them inspires a false hope that ultimately, in my opinion, can be much worse than doing nothing. There are also multiple other medications that we know work for this disorder. For many patients, the choice isn't nintenib or nothing. The choice is nintedanib or MMF or cyclophosphamide or a trial with one of the other drugs that's coming down the pipeline. Now past that, there's three other concerns I want to briefly touch on. The first is differential attrition bias. In this trial, 80.6% of patients in the nintedanib group and 89.2% in the placebo group completed the intervention. That sets us up for the possibility of differential attrition bias. Those 9% of patients in the Nintendonib group who didn't complete therapy might be special. What might be special about them? Well, they might be sicker. Often a patient who is sicker, has less functional capacity at baseline, is also less likely to be able to complete a one-year intervention that causes quite a lot of side effects. Now, there's a few ways to deal with this. One is to keep getting measurements, so even in patients who stopped taking intentative, make sure that you get FVC measurements at 52 weeks, and then we can still compare the groups. Now, the authors tried to do this, but they didn't get them for all. 84% in the intentative group versus 89% in the placebo group had measurements at 52 weeks. So that gives you 5% of patients who dropped out and didn't have measurements at 52 weeks. This is a problem because I suspect those patients were sicker. Dropping sick people out of the nintendant group is going to falsely amplify the benefit. The authors performed a sensitivity analysis to see if this mattered, and the results were no longer significant. The second thing that I just can't let go of are the figures that the New England Journal allowed to be published in this paper. Vinay Prasad had a guest on his podcast recently who called this axis malfeasance, and I love that term. It perfectly describes what these authors did. Now, when we were all in middle school, we were told that if you're going to make a bar graph, you should have it go from zero to 100%. Otherwise, you're kind of cheating the system and trying to falsely amplify the treatment effect. In cardiology trials, when they publish Kaplan-Meier curves, they make them show the whole spectrum, and then they can show in a little box what it would look like if you zoomed in really closely. Here, they only gave the zoom in. They didn't make them show the full spectrum. I would have been more okay with that if they did make them show the minimal clinically important difference. It's not entirely clear what that is, but before this trial, many people would have agreed that 5% is an MCID for this disease. The authors clearly knew that because they did include in one of their tables the rate of patients who met a 5% benefit. It's surprising to me and somewhat disappointing that the New England Journal of Medicine let this paper be published with, with figures that are this deceptive. And the last thing that I just can't stop feeling uncomfortable with is the amount of money that Boringer Ingelheim is spending on physicians who prescribe this drug and advocate for this drug. There is also no one spending money on advocacy for MMF or cyclophosphamide or other alternatives. This creates a weird disparity where the people who we consider key opinion leaders often have conflicts of interest with this medication that, although I don't know if they matter, make me a little bit uncomfortable. Something I've been doing that has been interesting is looking them up on CMS Open Payments, which is a database managed by the Center for Medicare Services, and seeing just how much money has been flowing towards people who push for this drug. It has been eye-opening, to say the least. In conclusion, MMF really is the standard of care for this disease, and I do not think this trial changes my opinion about that. That being said, I do think there's a group of patients for whom I will be given this drug. People who cannot tolerate MMF and are losing functional vital capacity and have a normal BMI are someone who I think I would be trying this in. I would not be trying this universally first line, and I would not be trying this in patients where I think the costs are going to outweigh any benefits. And finally, you really need to know the numbers and counsel patients appropriately. It's nice to have a new option, but I think you should be cautious in offering patients an intentative for systemic sclerosis associated ILD. I hope that was interesting. Thank you for listening, and thanks for reading the article if you already have done so. I hope you enjoy your holidays. I have a lot to talk about, and we'll be back in 2020 opening up with the TULIP Trials. Thanks again, and have a great week.